What can a regenerate person will, desire, and perform that an unregenerate person cannot? What does it really mean to be born, ag born again? Do Christians become Christians the same way a Muslim becomes a Muslim? Is your version of Christianity a supernatural religion or a natural religion? Welcome to the Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is a podcast that tackles head-on and without trepidation these difficult questions posed to Christianity by an unbelieving and thoroughly secular culture. We bring the tools of biblical theology, faithful apologetics, and a theologically and biblically informed philosophical framework to bear in an attempt to answer these questions and their implications on society, thereby calling the unbeliever to repentance as well as hopefully edifying and equipping the believer. My name is Ed Dingus, and today I am continuing my series of episodes on provisionism. Specifically, I'm talking about provisionism's representation of salvation and election, which I deem to be incoherent. Um, and I've already made arguments along the way that provisionism's representation of the gospel, of grace, uh, of the nature of fallen man, the atonement, are all, in the grand scheme of things, incoherent. Now we're going to turn our attention to provisionism's view of salvation and election. And the question is always going to be, what do the scriptures teach about the subjects of salvation and election? How does the Bible talk about these matters? Give me that old-time religion Give me that old-time religion Give me that old-time religion I said it good enough for me Well, it was a good for Paul and Silas It was a good for Paul and Silas It was good for Paul and Silas It's good enough for me Give me that old-time religion Give me old-time religion I said it good enough for me Thank you, Jerry Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Jerry Lee Lewis performing Old Time Religion. <laughs> All right, let's jump. Let's jump into this. Provisionism's Doctrine of Regeneration. Article 5 over at Leighton Flowers uh, Soteriology 101 website, which is the, the uh, Grand Central Station for everything anti-reformed and anti-Calvinist. Anti all right, says this, Article 5, the regeneration of the sinner. We affirm that any person who responds to the gospel with repentance and faith is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is a new creation in Christ and enters at the moment he believes into eternal life. Here's the affirmation. 
We deny that any person is regenerated prior to or apart from hearing and responding to the gospel, which means that at least it seems that flowers might believe that if you've never heard the gospel before, you die and go to hell. Only, <laughs> only there are qualifications here uh, to this. Um, you have these quibblers saying things like, well, the, the gospel is in all of creation. In other words, general revelation contains the gospel, which means the gospel is not special revelation. And if you push this far enough, you end up in a situation where there is no distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Not really. It's a superficial distinction at best. And I, I say that to say this, what you're going to see, I believe, uh, in provisionism, when they talk about regeneration or being born again, is a superficial, at best, a superficial understanding of what it means to be born again, what it mean, means to be regenerated, what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Because you have to take the system as a whole, right? It needs to cohere, which is why I am continually making the argument that there is uh, significant degrees of incoherence inside provisionism. And the area of regeneration, salvation, election, isn't any different. So, Let's start off with this question. What is the greatest sin? Listen, if you're a Christian, you should be asking questions. This, is, this doesn't mean you should be questioning God, but you should be asking questions. Uh, asking the question, what does God mean, is not questioning God. Uh, asking the question, is God really telling the truth here? Okay, that, that's, that's questioning God. God, or is, is God right about this? That's questioning God. Asking questions about what does God mean here is not questioning God. You, as a believer, should always be asking questions. You should be interested enough in the truths of Scripture to ask questions, and you should be humble enough to allow the Scripture to answer those questions for you. So what is the greatest sin? The greatest sin is unbelief. This is the sin that leads to every other sin that a human being commits. Unbelief. Unbelief is why men refuse to acknowledge God as their creator. It is why men refuse to take God at his word. It is why they think the gospel is foolish. It is why they reject the miracles of the Bible. It is why Adam and Eve fell to begin with. It is why scholars deny a literal Adam and Eve in the garden. Unbelief. It is why men live immoral lifestyles. They do not believe that there is an eternal judge who will one day hold them accountable for their immorality. God says no one is good. Unbelief says no, 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 that's not true. There are good people. Unbelief is why men refuse to acknowledge their unqualified, complete, and utter dependence on an obligation to God who is the very source of their being in every sense. 
Unbelief is why mankind has fallen and living under the curse of God in a world that is cursed by God. Unbelief is quite simply the refusal to take God at his word. Anytime a person refuses to take God at his word, it is always because of the sin of unbelief. Now, in contrast to the sin of unbelief, taking God at his word is, is the, the, the single act of obedience that we could ever do. It is the greatest good. It glorifies God in every way we could hope to glorify God. Taking God at his word. Everything comes back to that. Every Christian ought to, to burn that into their thinking. If unregenerate men, now think about this, if unregenerate men can act to perform what is essentially the highest good that a man could possibly do, perform, engage in, surely he can perform all the lesser goods. Surely he has that capability. If I can lift a thousand pounds, I can lift 800. I can lift 500. Now, let me say it again. Faith and trust in God as our creator is the highest good that a human creature can do. Because from that faith, all the fruit of Christianity comes. All of it. Every single fruit that we see in the Christian life comes from trusting God as our creator. All of it. It all traces back to that one thing. Now, let me ask you this question. What need do I have to be born again if I can perform the greatest good just like someone who hasn't been born again? What does being born again get me? If I can lift a thousand pounds, not being born again, if I can, if I can do that, why do I need to be born again? Because the idea is, unless you're born again, you can't lift a thousand pounds. Unless you have a new nature, you cannot please God. Well, wait a minute. If I can lift a thousand pounds without being born again, why do I need to be born again? I can already lift a thousand pounds. All I have to do is go do it. I can just will to do it and do it. If I can please God, if I can have desires that are pleasing to God, if I can desire to trust God as an unregenerate person, what changes when I become regenerate? I'm already desiring to do the greatest thing from which all Christian fruit comes as an unregenerate person. This is why I say that the, the notion of being born again in provisionism is a superficial understanding of what it means to be born again. So the question is, 
can I perform the single most noble act and mandate that God has given humanity? Can I take God at his word in my current state? Now, I said earlier, what do we do? What do we do to answer this question? Well, we turn to Scripture. Scripture tells us what we can and cannot do. Scripture tells us what is true about us, what is not true about us. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, the Apostle Paul talks about what is true concerning human nature. Universally, both Jews and Gentiles, which is lotty dotty, everybody. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Well, desiring to believe the gospel is good. That's a good thing. That is doing a good thing. Desiring is doing a good thing. There is not even one, Paul says. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul's description of both Jews and Gentiles, which would encompass everyone in the known world according to Paul's context. Everyone, universal, all humanity. Does this passage answer the question? I think it does. What provisionism fails to understand, as does Arminianism and Pelagianism, is that the sinner is unwilling to believe God, to take God at his word. He or she is both unwilling and incapable because of his cursed nature. And that cursed nature produces a cursed will. A cursed nature can only result in a cursed will. The human will is just as touched by sin as the human nature because the will is the product of the nature. The will is what nature unavoidably produces as a human being. Taken at face value, it seems that this answers the question without equivocation. Now, Leighton Flowers and other provisionists have tried to limit the description in this verse to atheists and such. Preferring to ignore Paul's use of this text and choosing rather to limit the meaning to David's supposed use of this text. The tactic is to claim that David had only atheists in mind in the psalm and therefore uh, that must be who Paul had in mind. But is it? Moreover, if we employed this hermeneutic elsewhere, if we took this same approach to other Old Testament texts. How many prophecies concerning the Messiah would end up, would we end up mangling? 
I think we would end up mingling a whole bunch. We would end up with the Jewish version of a physical king who would restore natural Israel. That's what we would end up with. And this will not do. We do not get to employ a hermeneutic of convenience as flowers is so desperate to do. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament text very often carries an immediate application and sense as well as a much greater or more precise application and sense. In other words, the same interpretive principle that applies to Isaiah 7 that talks about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ also applies to Psalm 14. David is speaking about the wicked of his generation, but God is also speaking about all the wicked. And Paul applies that psalm in this way. And about that, there can be no honest doubt. There can be dishonest doubt. You can read what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, and it's clear that he has God has placed them all, both Jews and Gentiles, under sin, as it is written, Paul says. The context is clear. Moreover, every person who refuses to take God at his word is guilty of saying in his or her heart, there is no God. Uh, this we call practical atheism. So even if you wanted to try and limit Psalm 14 to the atheists, we would say and could rightly say any person who carries on an immoral lifestyle, any person who refuses to take God at his word is saying in his heart, there is no God. This is unbelief. You may mentally assent, you may, you may say that you believe that there is a God, but your life does not indicate that you actually truly believe it. In your heart, the actions that you're taking in your life indicates that in your heart, you're saying there is no God to whom I'm going to be accountable at the final judgment. Now, where do you go? From there, if you're a latent flowers or a provisionist, you, you really go, you have nowhere to, to go. The provisionism employed by latent flowers and others fails basic hermeneutics in this area, but not in this area alone. The degree of scripture twisting that the provisionist advocates engage in is absolutely frightening. It's terrifying. I know I've interacted with a number of them and the the direction that they are headed in, where they are is bad enough. The direction where they're headed in is even more frightening. You cannot very well claim to believe in the Christian doctrine of regeneration unless you also accept the Christian doctrine of man. If you get the doctrine of man wrong, you will get the doctrine of regeneration wrong. If you don't understand the nature of fallen humanity, you will not understand the nature of what it means to be born again. And if you do not understand what it means to be born again, you do not understand the gospel. That is logic 101, ladies and gentlemen. The point here is that we must take care to ensure that 
our doctrine of regeneration rightly contrasts the heart of stone in its natural state with the heart of flesh in its new spiritual state. The born-again born experience should, should not be understood as some kind of euphemism for a radical and profound but altogether natural change in mindset and habits. And I'm afraid that's what it is in provisionism. But if one rejects, if a person rejects, look, if a person rejects the doctrine of original sin, rightly stated and understood according to Scripture, it seems impossible that that same person would understand regeneration as anything other than a natural change in one's disposition, attitude, and habits. After all, this is what Pelagius taught. We weren't really bound by sin in the, in the biblical sense of being bound by sin. We, we just had formed bad habits. It's like smoking. It's a bad habit. It's a hard habit to break. And in that sense, we're bound to sin. That's not the biblical sense of being bound to sin. That's an altogether natural idea of what it means to be bound to sin. It's not what the Bible is talking about. Because in the Bible, it requires a miracle for you to be set loose to be freed from this sin. You don't need a miracle to quit smoking. This is the superficial understanding of regeneration expressed in provisionism and in a lot of our even evangelical churches. It would be like a drug, drug addict for whom rehab actually worked and now he or she feels born again like a new person. You know, I'm no longer on meth or whatever it might be. The Christian doctrine of regeneration is not that. Back to the text. How did, how did Paul interpret Romans 3, 10 through 18? Well, in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? He, he answers this question, Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. To say Jew and Greek means to say every individual person in the world is under sin. That's what Paul is saying here. Everybody, including the Jew. And then he goes on and applies Romans 3, 10 through 18, or the Psalm, Psalm 14, to every sinner in both people groups. In other words, it is universal. As we used to say to the army, I said it earlier, lottie dotty everybody. Look, right? So, so what is the Christian doctrine of regeneration? Jeremiah 31 says, but in verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Folks, this is the work of God. God is doing this. I would suggest to you that if someone wants God's law written on their heart before God writes it on their heart, it's already written on their heart. The very desire to have God's law written on our hearts can only be the product of divine grace. Okay? Now, let's talk about divine grace. Grace, grace is a concept that is incredibly misunderstood by modern 
Christians of all walks. It's, this misunderstanding of grace is not isolated to provisionism, but provisionism also seems to have a very poor concept of what divine grace is. So let's let's get into that. Grace refers. We'll just pull a definition from Lexham Theological Workbook. Workbook. Word book. Good grief. Grace refers to the condition of being given or shown favor, especially by someone in a position to exercise goodwill by meeting a particular need. Grace can also refer to the manifestation of such a disposition of kindness in the form of material benefaction, including the giving of gifts, the approval of one's request, the granting of freedom or mercy, and the deliverance of salvation from evil or harm. Now that's grace. Grace is a disposition in God. It is God's unmerited favor. God himself moves to take a certain view or disposition toward an individual, and this is divine grace. We would say God's favorable disposition to the world in general in terms of he sends the rains, uh, the water, the sun, the heat, the cold, the winter. This is common grace. It's God's common favorable disposition to mankind in general. But there's another kind of grace. There's specific or special grace. Grace where God takes a disposition toward the individual that he has elected from before the foundation of the world. Grace is God acting and moving to do something on your behalf. Grace isn't some kind of infused power or ability, right? That's that's not grace. Now, let's say in the process of regeneration, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes to see and the mind to understand the gospel. So the eyes now see the light of the gospel. The mind understands the truth of the gospel because the Holy Spirit has given that person eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart and mind to understand, a desire to know. That activity of the Holy Spirit is the result of grace. But the Holy Spirit actually doing it isn't itself grace. It's the Holy Spirit performing an act. And the reason the Holy Spirit is performing the act is that God has taken a disposition toward the individual, a favorable disposition toward that person. We call that special grace. The very desire to do anything pleasing to God can only come from a radical and miraculous change in the nature of the person in whom this desire is found. A cursed human with a cursed nature producing a cursed will cannot possess such a pure desire. Grace is needed. This is precisely what Augustine was getting at when he prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Grace is the result 
of God's favor in so much as God has worked within the individual a new nature, removing the heart of stone, replacing it with a heart of flesh, a new heart. That work wrought by God is the result of God's favor toward that individual, what we call God's grace. We are unable and unwilling to believe until God's grace produces this change through the work of God's spirit and word. And then, and only then, do we become able and willing to believe. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put my fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. We think that the, the action of fearing God, we fear God. We think that that is totally left up to us and that we are capable of doing this apart from any work of God. We think that, that you know, grace provides the instructions of what we're supposed to do, but the free will has to act in order to follow them. In other words, provisionism without admitting it. And I'm sure they would deny this, but it's logically the case. They believe that grace is necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. Grace is necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. That means that grace makes salvation possible through the cross of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, but only possible. What makes salvation sufficient is grace plus the free will of the human being making the decision. But grace, the grace of God in and of itself is insufficient for salvation. This is what provisionism believes, although it will deny that it believes it. What would we expect a false teaching to, to do? Admit uh, that it is a false teaching? Of course not. So, <clears throat> God places his fear in our hearts, and absent that work, we do not fear God. We cannot fear God. We are unwilling to fear God. Paul tells us that it is a universal fact that there is no fear of God in the fallen man's heart. That's what Paul says. No fear of God, Romans 3, 10 through 18. I read it a few minutes ago. There is no fear of God. Jeremiah 32, 40, God says, I will put my fear in their hearts. If God does not put his fear in the heart of the individual, they're not going to fear God. The work has to come from God. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This does not sound anything like someone who had formed a bunch of bad habits in a sinful environment, deciding to break all those bad habits. I'm just going to, I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to start reading scripture. Grace has given me scripture. I'm going to exercise my free will, read the scripture and do what it says, because after all, I can do it. That is not what the Bible describes. No, the Bible does not use this language. Scripture nowhere talks like this. If a person can break the most deadly and addicting habit of all, unbelief, 
then surely they can break the lesser habits by a simple act of their own will. They don't need grace. This is the claim. If you believe in libertarian freedom, you logically, necessarily have to affirm, whether you say it with your mouth or not, grace is insufficient. It is unnecessary when it comes to my own personal, well, not unnecessary, insufficient. I still need the grace of the gospel being preached to me. And then I'm going to make, I'm going to make up my own mind without admitting it. And in some cases without realizing it, this is how provision is believed. This is what they believe. It's how they talk. It's how they argue. It's how they preach. This is provisionism. Grace only makes salvation possible. The realization of salvation in every individual isn't due to divine grace. It's due to individual human effort. This is Pelagianism in disguise. I don't know of a provisionist who doesn't also affirm libertarian free will. I don't know of one. They go hand in hand. John 1, 12 through 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John lumps receiving Christ, adoption, believing, and being born of God as events that happen pretty much simultaneously. But then he locates the cause in God and denies that these events, these actions are the result of human effort of any kind. He says we're born again not because of our ethnicity, not because of our will, not because of the will of any man, not because of my will, but of God. In other words, the reason we receive Christ, the reason we are given the right to become children of God is because we are born of God. The cause of our receiving him, the cause of our faith, the cause of our becoming children of God, the cause of our believing in his name is the fact that we have been born of God. That is what John 1, 12, and 13 is saying. That's what it's claiming. The born-again experience is described in the following verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If, if I affirm the provisionist view of Christianity and I believe in libertarian freedom, that I'm not really in bondage to sin, that I just have some bad habits that I can break based on libertarian freedom's view of the will. What is this new creature nonsense? What does Paul mean when he says you're a new creature? I can do everything as a regenerate person uh, that I could do as an unregenerate person. I could do everything as an unregenerate per person that I can do as a regenerate person. I can believe. I can, I can break the habit of unbelief. I can uh, do, always do the contrary. Rather than unbelieving, unbelief, I can believe. Uh, rather than committing adultery, I can refrain from committing adultery. Rather than cursing God, I can refrain from cursing God. Well, if I can do all that as an unregenerate person, what's the new creature? What's new about me? Someone might say, well, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And, and that means what exactly? If libertarian free will is the case, 
What does it mean for me to have the Holy Spirit in me? I now am empowered and enabled to do what? That I wasn't already empowered and enabled to do by grace, according to the provisionists. It makes no sense to me. All right, Galatians 6.15, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The Greek phrase, kainekatesis, means a new creation. Literally, literally means that something has been newly created. Something is there that was not there before. And it's a reference to our nature. To be regenerated is to be a new creation in Christ. Too many modern Christians think that a Christian simply makes them, being a Christian simply makes them a better person with better habits and better morals. Wrong. Being a Christian makes you a different person with an entirely new set of desires causing you to form new habits ingrained in you through God's gracious work in the inner man. That's what being a Christian is. William G.T. Said, said, says, Grace is imparted to sinful man, not because he believes, but in order that he may believe. For faith itself is the gift of God. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even like the way we say grace is imparted because then it, it, it appears that it's a tangible thing in and of itself when that's really not what grace is. So we would say it like this, the divine favor, the unmerited favor of God is imparted to sinful man or directed to sinful man, not because he believes, but in order that he may believe. For faith itself is the gift of God. This is the experience of being born again. This is describing regeneration. The alternative view, the provisionist view, the Pelagian view, places you in a a position of holding to a superficial regeneration, one that is external, not internal. In truth, Superficial regeneration is really an oxymoron. Regeneration is radical, top to bottom. More precisely, it puts one in the position of actually denying the biblical doctrine of regeneration, emptying a word of its biblical content. Most certainly can have devastating consequences, and in this case, the consequences couldn't, the consequences couldn't be more devastating. If I'm if I am born in a state of innocence and I am born without a sinfully depraved nature, and if I possess a free will, a will that is free in the libertarian sense, what need do I have for a radical internal transformation? My old self, so to speak, is really no different from my new self. What I could do, what I could will to do, then I can will to do now. What I can will to do now, I could always will to do. Just as I control my desires now, I controlled my desires then. Why must I be born again? Why must I become an entirely new creature in Christ? I'm simply trading one habit, an old habit, for a new habit. Provisionism wants to claim a radical change in its view of regeneration, but when one examines its doctrine of man, its anthropology, one discovers that it cannot hold to both. One has to go. If it wants biblical regeneration, it will have to adjust its anthropology, its view of human nature. If it insists on its anthropology, it cannot have biblical regeneration. For this reason, I find its doctrine of regeneration incoherent from top to bottom. Now let's let's move to the provisionist doctrine of election. 
Election to salvation, Article 6, says this, We affirm that in reference to salvation, election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ to have a people who are His by repentance and faith. That's the affirmation. We deny that election means that from eternity God predestined certain people for salvation and others for condemnation. Now, the denial. We, de we, we deny that God predestined certain people for salvation. Then the conjunction. And others for condemnation. Well, did God, does the Bible teach that God has in fact predestined, predetermined certain people to be saved? Does the Bible teach this? Does the Bible claim this? Or did, did the Reformed guys just make this up without any scriptural basis whatsoever? Interesting. Let's talk about this. Note the phrase, a people. A people. We affirm that in reference to salvation, Election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ to have a people who are his by repentance and, and faith. This is a critical component of provisionism soteriology. It is no different than Arminianism. Uh, it, it's the same thing. They believe the same thing. Does the Bible describe election as a generic group of people or does it describe election in more specific terms? That's the question. Is election an abstract idea or is it a concrete reality? The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this, In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills by his almighty power, turns them to good, and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. He does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. You see, provisionism wants election without specificity. Provisionism wants an election, an elect nation without citizens. Provisionism wants an elect people group without the people. There can be no nation without the citizenry. Without people, there's, there's no people group. This is the logical flaw of provisionism. A nation is a group of people. Election is to choose one to the exclusion of another. Okay, no nation, there, then there's no people. No people, no nation. If you don't elect a person, you cannot elect a nation. Period. Uh, and the, the, the argument is absolutely ridiculous. It, I mean, it's so ridiculous, it's hard to, to seriously engage it. That's how silly the argument is to choose the people that made up the nation of Israel. This is the second piece of this. God rejected the people who made up all the other nations. 
He deliberately didn't choose them. And this comes back to grace. God's disposition, God's favor directed toward people to a specific end. When you go to the car dealership to choose a car, you make your election of a specific car and you drive that car or truck home. By selecting that vehicle, you have rejected the hundreds of other vehicles that are on the lot, haven't you? For whatever reason. By not choosing them, you rejected them. You cannot affirm election in any sense of that word without also affirming reprobation and maintain logical coherence. You simply can't. This is logically where it goes. Romans 9.21 tells us, Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common or dishonorable use? It's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is yes. The potter has that right. This is what the Reformed are saying. God has that right. The provisionist is saying, that's unfair. That's immoral. That's unjust. And the Reformed says, that's what the Bible teaches. And in Romans 9, clearly it does. The point of this text goes to the heartbeat of, of the provisionist denial of rep reprobation. The thrust of the denial is not exegetical. It's philosophical. For God to reprobate from all eternity would be immoral. It would make God not only less than good, but according to provisionists, a moral monster. But if we take, if we take Paul at face value in context, he obviously disagrees with this reasoning. God can do whatever he wants with his lump of clay because whatever God does is inherently moral. It is good for God to make the same lump from one vessel of from one lump, it is good for God. It is good for God to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, another vessel for dishonor. That act of God is itself moral. It's right, it's just, it's good because God does it for his own glory according to his own purpose. Will we accept this truth or will we bristle at it and demand that God give an account for such actions. Now think, think about that for a second. God reveals through Paul in Romans 9 that he is justified to create from the same lump vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Paul goes on and says he's done this. This represents a blatant contradiction to the, to the doctrine of conditional election. It is God who works in us to will and to believe. That is Clearly, what the scripture teaches. So provisionism finds itself not only in a logically untenable position, it finds itself in an exegetically untenable position. Provisionism's view of salvation then entails a view of regeneration that, is, that logically ends in no regeneration at all. It is a salvation that is not by grace alone, through faith alone. Provisionism rewrites Ephesians 2.8 to say that salvation is made possible by grace through faith. But the realization, the actualization of salvation is a matter of the human will. And if the will is capable, then the nature that produces it has to be good in some sense. And this, of course, 
contradicts any sound exegesis of Scripture as it relates to the role of grace in regeneration and the overall process of salvation from beginning to end, as far as that goes. On both fronts, then, logically and biblically, provisionism perverts the Christian doctrine of salvation by removing grace and whitewashing human nature. Salvation becomes insufficient, only necessary. It's only necessary for salvation, but it's not sufficient for salvation. Provisionism's view of election equally entails logical incoherence and a corrupting of the biblical text. To choose five men to play on your team, you deliberately reject the remaining men that you didn't choose to play on your team. You choose one over the others. It is impossible to hold to election without also holding to some form of reprobation. The difference is that election is unconditional and reprobation is conditional. There is nothing in man that God would would choose him. But the basis for rejecting men is always located in man. How does this work? Well, we don't know. We don't know how it works, and God doesn't tell us. He just tells us that it is so. He just says, take my word for it. This is the way things are. Faith takes God at his word. Unbelief rejects it and proceeds to place God on trial. This started in the garden with Adam and Eve. Rejecting God's reasoning, rejecting God's word. Provisionism, like Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism, all attempt to get God off the moral hook. They wish to put up an argument that removes God from being morally culpable for the evil that exists in God's created reality. And all of them fail to do this, both biblically and logically. Their view of God, what they do, their argument, their move to solve this problem of evil in God's created world places them in a position to contradict the Bible, exegetically speaking, places them in a position to hold to a logically incoherent view of Christianity. That's provisionism. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've said something that has uh, kind of sparked your interest, kind of uh, got you to think a little bit about uh, these issues, um, and hopefully will cause you to dig deeper into them and and honestly, openly ask questions and allow the text to inform your answers. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. 